How many people do you know that were once told they had 14 days to live after being diagnosed with cancer for the second time and then went on to climb Everest, the seven summits of the world, and also finish a Hawaii Ironman? The answer to this is probably none because this week's guest on the Heads and Tails podcast is the only person in history to accomplish that feat. This is Kevin Som, you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. We share stories of perseverance and inspiration in sports and in life. Thanks again for tuning in to episode number 20 of the Heads and Tails podcast. This week we have Sean Swarner. Uh, he's a two-time cancer survivor. He's climbed Mount Everest. He's climbed the seven summits of the world. And he's also ran the uh, Hawaii Ironman. And he's the only person in the world who's ever done that. Um, so, Sean, can you just start by talking about um, just a little bit about your story and how you were first diagnosed with cancer and kind of uh, what that cancer was and what the prognosis was and, you know, kind of the, the obstacles that you faced with that initial diagnosis and also maybe what kind of sports you played growing up um, since this is a, a sports like health and safety podcast and we share like you know stories of perseverance in, in athletics yeah for sure um, well first of all Kevin thanks thanks for having me on and uh, you know I, I really appreciate it it's an honor um, no the honors are for sure <laughs> no my uh, my story god it goes back to when I was 13 um, actually, before then, like you said, if, if I was involved in any sports, I was I was involved in sports. I was a a swimmer. I was in football. I played basketball. I played soccer. I played um, cross country, track. I even pole vaulted. I mean, I, I pretty much did everything except for maybe hockey. You know, I don't. Now that I think about it, I don't even think I've ever been on skates before. Maybe I was, try that. With all the ice and you've climbed on Everest, you, all that snow you're around, you've never, never been ice skating. Yeah, no, my, uh, every time I've been on ice and uh, with boots and stuff, it's been with crampons attached to the bottom of them. <laughs> Different kind of metal. Yeah. But no, like I said, my, my story goes back to when I was uh, 13. I was diagnosed with advanced stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it's crazy because when I was in eighth grader, the doctors actually gave me uh, only three months to live. So how how did that come about? Did you wake up with like a, a tumor? I actually uh, interviewed a, a girl a few years, uh, no, a few a few years, a few episodes back. Her name is Vanessa Cecchio, and she had a Hodgkin's lymphoma too. But she said she mm-hmm. like woke up one day with uh, like a tumor on her neck. Was it the same kind of deal or? No, I had nothing. I, I didn't have any night sweats. I didn't have any um, lymph node swelling. None of that. Um, fortunate, I guess, fortunately or, or or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, I was going in for a checkup or I was going in for a layup in basketball and came down and something snapped in my knee. And that knee injury triggered every joint in my body to go so haywire that I, I puffed up like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And like they, not I, just your knee, it was like everywhere. Every joint, yeah. Like my my knuckles, my my knee, like my other knee, my shoulders, my elbows, my everything just swelled up. Damn. And they knew something was wrong, so that's that's how they first uh, started to to investigate what was going on. That's that's uh, that's crazy. Um, so what was the most you know difficult part of that? You know, after the diagnosis, what kind of treatments did you go through, and what was the hardest part about that? Well, I went through about 10 months of chemotherapy, uh, you know, lost all the hair in my body, lost everything. Um, I think the most difficult part was not the fact that I looked like a, a troll waddling out from underneath a bridge, uh, because like I said, I was 60 pounds overweight. I was bald from head to toe as a 13-year-old. I think what was the most, the most difficult part was actually explaining to people why I looked the way I did and just dealing with the fact that I wasn't normal and I couldn't 
keep up with my friends in, in sports and I couldn't keep up with um, what they were doing when you're, you know, a quote unquote, whatever normal teenager would be. But, right. you know, I, I couldn't be normal at all. So you're still trying to play sports while you're going through your treatments? The the first time around, yeah, I did. I tried to to do soccer when I felt well. Um, I ran a five k race after a, a week after one of my treatments, which was kind of interesting. It uh, you know I, I didn't enter it to win it or anything like that. It was just just something fun to do, right? Uh, just just to keep active. And my parents pushed me to be as active as possible, um, even though I was removed from the school system uh, when I was going through my treatments and I was back in the school system when I felt good. Um, whenever I did have those good days, I tried to take advantage of them as much as I could. Right. Cool. Um, let's talk about like kind of your emotion side when you were told that you had cancer. Were you scared? You know, what kind of stuff was running through your head at that point in time? Well, you know, it, it was interesting because when, when when you're younger, when you're 13 years old, you really don't fully grasp and understand what death is about. Right. You, know, you have an idea that, oh, you know, your hamster passed away, maybe your dog passed away, I'll never <laughs> see him again. But um, when it when you're dealing with humans, you never really understand the full ramifications of what could potentially happen with cancer. And I don't think I really understood what was going on. I just tried to um, deal with, with every day as it came by. And when I had those good days, I, I took advantage of them. And when I had the bad days, I knew the bad days were going to pass. Right. Um, yeah, that's, and plus at the same time, when you're that young, you never, you don't think anything like that would ever happen to you anyway. Right. 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 Um, so once you were, you know, cleared and you know, that you had, uh, you were in remission, right. Um, from the, the first bout of cancer, how long was it until you were diagnosed with, um, another form of cancer and what was that cancer? Well, actually, I was in remission um, for about a year, so actually two years, almost two years. It was 20 months, and I was going in for a regular checkup for the first cancer when they found the second cancer, and unfortunately, this this wasn't a record I was going for. I'm the only person in the world who's ever been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and Askin's sarcoma, um, and no one, no one ever has been diagnosed with those two cancers before, and... Fortunately, I had the first cancer because of of me going in for that checkup. That's how they found the second cancer. Right. Um, so, what was going through your head when you were diagnosed with cancer again? You know, I'm sure that was really tough. So, you know, you finally overcame. You know, yeah. the first you know bout of cancer, and then you go for a, a checkup, and you find out that you got something completely different. Yeah, it was it was really rough. Uh, the second time around, like I said, the first time I didn't really understand what was going on, but the second time I went through the first one, you know, I, I didn't want to go through it again. You know, I, I knew my friends were going to, I don't want to say abandon me, but a lot of them did. Um, I had a core group of friends who were always there. Uh, I knew I was going to be different. I knew I was going to lose my hair. I knew my life was going to be on pause for a while. Right. And I knew that I was going to have to focus on beating that cancer. And, and basically I, I had two choices, you know, to fight for my life or give up and die. Right. And obviously you didn't choose the, right. the, the, <laughs> the latter. Um, uh, so what were the hardest parts of that, you know, um, of that treatment for that, that cancer? And what, what was the one where you, you were told that you had 14 days to live? Was it the first one or the second one? It was actually the second cancer. In fact, it was um, the, the second cancer is so rare, three out of a million people get it, and it has a prognosis of roughly 6%. 
So if you have a hundred people with this type of cancer, bearing in mind that, you know, like I said, um, three out of a million get it. If you have a hundred people who get this cancer, 94 pass away. Wow. That's even crazier. So what kind of cancer is it? Like is it in a specific part of your body or what makes it different? What makes it so rare? I mean, rare, I guess, because not that many people get it, but <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's a branch of what's called Ewing sarcoma, and this one attacked my – it was between my ribs and my right lung. Um, it can show up anywhere. A lot of times it shows up in bone, uh, like your bone marrow and stuff. And I've, I've met of quite a few people who've had it before, and unfortunately they've all passed away. Um, it's just a, a very destructive, aggressive, and, and deadly cancer uh, and very, very rare. Um, but going back to your question too, it, actually in, in one day – um, they found a tumor on an X-ray. They did a needle biopsy. They took out a lymph node. They put in a Hickman catheter, which is a, a permanent IV. Um, they cracked open my ribs, took out the tumor, put in a drainage tube, and started chemotherapy in less than 24 hours. So that's that's how aggressive this cancer was. They wanted to catch it as soon as they could. Yeah, they weren't joking around at all. Right. Um, yeah. I want to go back to what you just said about how you've spoken to a few people who have had that cancer before and unfortunately they haven't, you know, they didn't make it. How does that make you feel when you, you know, you know that you're one of the only people to ever survive, you know, from that form of cancer? I know, I don't know how much you know about my head injury, but there's about a 50% fatality rate from what I had with second impact syndrome and almost everyone that survives, they're mentally, they're mentally handicapped for the rest of their lives. And I didn't have either of those situations, which is kind of why I started this podcast and why I'm, you know, I'm trying to share, you know, be a platform for other people's uh, stories as well. So how did that make, how did that make you feel, you know, when you know how, you know, lucky you are? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. It, it, it kind of goes back and forth. It's oftentimes, I feel incredibly lucky and fortunate and blessed and, and you know, wanting to take uh, advantage of every moment that I have, which I do all the time. Um, but, but on the flip side, there, there are some times when I – and this, is, this might sound weird, but I, sometimes I feel guilty. No, I, I feel the same way. No, yeah. In some sense, it's like, yeah, why was I you know, so lucky to – you know, make it out on the the good the good side. Yeah, exactly. And and oftentimes, uh, you know, just with cancer in general, um, I had a friend of mine who just sent me a message on Facebook saying that he lost a friend of his today to cancer. So I mean, yeah, it's something that definitely affects everyone. You can't get yeah. away from it. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel guilty sometimes, but most of the time I feel like I have a, you know, a new lease on life and I have rose cut rose colored lenses and I see life from a completely different perspective than most people. And I'm sure, you know, you, you can probably, uh, agree with that too, from your perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, and didn't they removed your lung, um, with this after this, um, the, the second bout of cancer? Yeah. A, a lot of people think that because I say that I have one fully functioning lung, but uh, I had some radiation therapy that killed my right lung. So there's basically there's so much scar tissue there, there's no oxygen transfer. So that's why I have one fully functioning lung. All right. But then I, I, I've read up a lot about your story before this interview, and I saw that you did get back into sports after you recovered. So I want to talk about that recovery because a lot of what this podcast is all about is like, you know, when, when you have an injury or if you have an illness like, like you had, you know, it's all about that comeback and, you know, staying positive enough through that recovery, you know, to, to make it back, you know, to 
being as good, if not better, than where you started. So can you talk about you know athletics after uh, the the second bout of cancer? Yeah, I think um, with swimming for me because I was I was a competitive swimmer for years. In fact, I still have records that go back to I think eighty six, eighty seven. Oh wow! Um, and, and they'll they'll probably never be broken because I I had my sights set on the Olympics. I was ready to do some amazing so stuff. You weren't just like a you know a weekend warrior athlete. You were like legit. I was I was legit. I, I went to college. Um, you know, we were swimming uh, uh, twice a day on deck in the water, six a.m., and then coming back into practice and everything else. Uh, but before I went to college, th- those are what that's when I had the records. But when they cracked open my ribs and took out the tumor, they removed part of my right lat muscle. And you kind of need your, swimmer, your back yeah, muscle you to swim. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it's it's difficult now. I kind of joke around. I have you know one big lat muscle, and if I get in the water like a big ocean, I'll just swim in a circle. <laughs> oh, that is funny. But uh, the doctors also told me that um, it would be very difficult for me to get my lung capacity back because of the damaged lung, um, because of of the amount of chemo and the medicine, uh, the basically the chemical cocktail that was pumped through my body. Uh, it damaged a lot of things. But just over time and, and constantly pushing myself, you know, I, I've 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 managed to push myself to the point where again, you know, I can I can finish the Hawaii Ironman, which has been dubbed the world's most difficult triathlon, and climbing Mount Everest, which, I mean, that's just the pinnacle of, of the world. Wow. So what was the point when you, you know, you started, or what was the point when you thought like, uh, this is something I want to do and that you want to start climbing and doing Ironmans, you know, what, what was the turning point or the, the switch that went off in your head that was like, this is something that I want to do? Yeah, it's funny you're asking that question. I was just thinking of um, some smart-ass comments like, well, my brother and I were out at a bar having a couple drinks. <laughs> came up with this crazy idea. But yeah, why not? <laughs> no, it actually came up when I was uh, working towards my master's and my doctorate in psychology. I wanted to be a psychologist for cancer patients. Cool. Where did you go to and, school? But, well, I went to school at Westminster College in Pennsylvania, small liberal arts school, and then I went down to Jacksonville, Florida, UNF. To, um, to work for my master's and doctorate. And that's when I, I actually took a sabbatical for my studies. I just took a break and everything because anybody who goes through anything traumatic, you know, I'm sure yourself included, you don't understand how it really affects you until you stop to actually think about it. Right. And through my high school years, I was known as Cancer Boy in college because I was reliving my high school years. I turned into Belushi from Animal House. No. So <laughs> I partied too much in, in college. And when I was working for my math, for my higher education, that's when I started taking my life seriously. And I started thinking, okay, well, when I was going through these cancers, my teenage years, I should have been thinking about the future and developing this concept of the future. But my future literally was the next day sometimes. You know, I went to bed not knowing if I was going to wake up. What was that like? Well, I mean, every time I, I wouldn't say every time, but a lot of times I'd go to bed, I would be afraid to fall asleep. You know, because you, I didn't, know you didn't think you were going to wake up. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, there was there were a couple times when I had temperatures of 107, 108, you know, pushing 100, uh, those those higher numbers where your brain's frying. Wow. So when I was working for, like I said, working on my degree, I started thinking about the cancers that I went through and how they changed my life and realized that, like I said earlier, when somebody goes through something traumatic, it affects you. To a point where you have to understand where you're going in life and where that direction is going to take you. Right. And 
I also realized that because of, of what I went through, those were the same reasons that were going to help me with dealing with cancer patients and the families and stuff, with the psychology and all, all that good stuff. But it was also the same reasons why I couldn't do it because I would, I would get too emotionally attached and I had my own baggage I, ha- I had to deal with. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that, but it, yeah, it makes sense. Um, so what do you do now? Do, do you... Like, are you, do you do anything with psychology now, or you kind of decided to branch off from that? Like, did you finish your degree at, at in Jacksonville, or? No, I never finished my degree, um, unfortunately. But if I, I suppose if if my speaking, you know, kind of fails because I'm a motivational keynote speaker, travel around the world, and and give corporate so that's your full-time presentations. Gig? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Full-time cool. gig. Um, you can find all the information on seanswarner.com. It's it's all there, and we're revamping the website. Just hooked up with a new marketing company, a, a new PR lady. Uh, her name's Adrian Schwartz for um, Atria PR. She's awesome. I'll uh, link all this up in the show notes too, so people can go cool. uh, find your story and. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, no no problem. So then, yeah, I, I travel around the world and, and help other people accomplish what they want to accomplish. And I'm actually, I'm I'm writing seven ebooks right now. The first one's going to be out September second. All right, cool. Uh, so, it's all about how people can uh, accomplish their own goals and climb their own Everest. Definitely keep me posted, and I'll post that on all my uh, social media outlets, too, to help spread the word. That would be awesome. Thank you. Um, before we move on to the climbing and the, the triathlons, um, <laughs> I just kind of want to talk about you know, how you were able to persevere through two – bouts of cancer like at your lowest moments like what kind of kept you going like did was there ever a moment where you wanted to give up or was it you know your, the support from your family like what was it that kept you going well I, I i think it's a number of different things and you know i i i just like everybody else i have ups and downs um, you know, there, there are days when I wake up and I don't want to get out of bed. I'm like, screw this. You know, it's well here in Colorado, you know, a couple days ago, I was like, well, screw this, man. I don't want to go outside. I don't want to go to the gym. It's, it's zero degrees outside. I got a foot of snow in my driveway. I don't want to plow that. I don't want to shovel that crap. You right. know, get out of here. <laughs> Um, but then there are other days where I'm motivated and I, I get out there and I go, you know, climb up a mountain and ski down, which, which is fantastic. Um, one of the things that does keep me motivated, and this is this is what I talk about in my presentations and what I'm writing about in my book, is the more real you make your end result in your mind using as many senses as you can. So for Everest, you know, I pictured myself on top. Um, the sound of the crunching snow was like styro- you know, like the styrofoam sound, the feeling of the wind on my face, the smell of the ozone. I, I made it as real as I possibly could in my mind. So that way when I encountered those obstacles that would normally set me back and frustrate me to quitting, with it being real in my mind, it doesn't make me quit. It just frustrates me to slow me down anymore. All right. That's a, a good tip. Um, so let's talk about your climbing. So obviously I'm sure you encountered a lot of obstacles along the way while you were climbing the seven summits of the world. So can you kind of talk about what that was like and also some of the, like the coolest things that you've ever seen and where you recommend people, um, go if they want to, you know, take on, uh, maybe their first climb. Well, I, I think the, uh, the coolest thing I've ever seen climbing joking, I guess would be, uh, the Yeti skull. You know, the abominable snowman skull. <laughs> oh. it's, it's in a little village called, um, let me see if I can remember what, I think it's Farishay or, 
uh, Pemboche or something like that, one of the one of the villages in Nepal, and uh, a monk comes out with this huge goiter around his neck. It's like the size of a basketball, and he kind of shuffles out because he's old and he's got a cane and he's he's moving out there. And um, you pay him, you know, whatever, like fifty cents over there. Pay him fifty cents, and he opens up this uh, this container, this this metal box, and inside this metal box is a glass cube, and inside that glass cube is this. Um, basically from like our eyebrows up. So if you just lopped off our head from our eyebrows up, right. this elongated stretched out skull, kind of like the top of a football, but more rounded at top. Was it a real skull or? Yeah, they, they, you know, and I say the quote unquote, they, yeah. they've tested the hairs on the head and they say that it's neither human nor ape. They're not quite sure what it is. What? So that was pretty cool. I have a picture of that somewhere. I'll have, have to dig it up and find it. But it's like this orange hair. It looks like orangutan hair, but it's not, apparently. Like I said, the, the quote-unquote right. they, those researchers. Yeah, if you could find that picture, <laughs> can you send that to me so I could put yeah. it up in the, the show notes? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, um, let's see. And then another another one of the most amazing things I saw was uh, being on, on top of Everest. Uh, pretty much where planes level off and fly. You know, it's it's over twenty nine thousand feet high, and I was standing on the summit and I looked out and I could actually see that the Earth was round. I could see the curvature of the Earth because you were that high. Wow. That, yeah, that was amazing. That's crazy. So basically, it was just like clouds, though. Like you couldn't, could you see like anything down because you were so high? Like I'm sure. Right. You were kind of limited. Yeah, it was it was like a sea of clouds, and then the other mountain peaks that were sticking out were like islands. So it was really cool. I mean, it was it was just beautiful. Awesome. So when you got to the top of Mount Everest, were you like, oh yeah? But then you're like, oh shit! Now I have to go walk, yeah. walk all the way down this thing. Exactly. Now we have a saying in climbing that it's a round trip sport. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah, I can't even imagine. So what was like the hardest um, obstacle that you came across when you were climbing Mount Everest? Well, I think mentally being out, most people don't know this. It takes about a month and a half to get your body used to the altitude. So you're on the mountain for a month and a half. I got to base camp April 8th and summited May 16th. So I was climbing that whole time. And a lot of people don't understand that you just don't show up and, you know, slowly go up the mountain. You have to acclimatize and go up and down and up and down and up and down a little bit higher and a little bit. Oh, wow. I had no idea that was like that. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So... I think mentally that was the hardest part. Sleeping in a tent for a month and a half was difficult, but you know, you, you do, you got to do what you got to do. Right. So yeah, no, uh, <laughs> no running water. Yeah. yeah we, no running water. Yeah. You're <laughs> digging your old, your own bathroom holes. I'm, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. You, you kind of put a, a toilet, um, a big opening. It must be so cold. <laughs> yeah, we, we kind of joke around that um, when you build these toilets, they're just rocks stacked on top of one another. Some of them are like five or six feet high. And there's Those a bu- squatty potties out there? Yeah, yeah, pretty much just a hole. And you climb on top of this, and then there's a bucket underneath to catch the stuff. And we kind of just... Stuff. Ra- yep. Then we kind of joke around that it actually freezes before it hits the bottom of the bucket. Oh, my God, yeah. It, like, shatters when it hits the ground. Right. <laughs> kind of bounces around, doesn't splat. That's funny. And but gross if, at the same time. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if people, because you also asked me if, if um, people are interested, interested in climbing, where would they go first? I would suggest Kilimanjaro because I actually take a group up Kilimanjaro every year as a fundraiser for my cancer charity. And we, um, we leave July, I believe, 17th. 
Um, all the information is on SeanSwarner.com, but if people sign up before the end of the month, they get 500 bucks off. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a good deal. Yeah, it's a six-day hike, and we also do a five-day safari. So if you've ever seen the movie The Lion King, you can go see where, you know. <laughs> what, Hakuna what, Matata, yeah. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'll link that up as well. Um, I know when I was watching the Outside the Lions episode on your story, it talked about, I forget what climb it was, but I think it was, was it the Denali climb? Denali, three, three attempts. Yeah, that how yeah it was. You had to do it three times before you made it to the top. So can you talk about that and kind of what obstacles you came across on that climb and what kept you coming back? Yeah, that I mean, that was frustrating to say the least. I I summited every mountain um, before that on the first attempt. This was the only one that took three attempts. The first one I uh, was on the headwall uh, on Denali, and it's like an 800 meter stretch of bulletproof ice. And it's like a, maybe like a 50 degree angle. And I was roped up to my climbing partner leading up and I fell a hundred feet basically. So we have, if we have 50 feet of rope between us, you know, I slid down past him and then fell for another 50 feet. So a total of a hundred feet. And I mean, that, that, that scared the crap out of me, obviously. I think so. And I, I, I belayed him in. So I, I, I got my composure about me, climbed back up to where I fell Sat down, belayed him in, so he he got to me, and when he got to me, my adrenaline was was pretty much gone, and the the just me being so frazzled and scared and freaked out, you know, I started shaking. I told him, "Dude, we got to get back down." So we went back down to the last camp, which is a, a few hours away, and we sat in the tent, and he was making dinner and everything. And I just sat there and I looked up. And kind of asking, I was like, hey, you know, if it's my time to be here, let me know. If, if I'm not supposed to be here, let me know, too, because I'm a huge believer in signs. And as I leaned back in the tent, my hood caught my glacier glasses and snapped in half. <laughs> so I instantly knew that was a sign. I looked right. back and I was like, dude, you, I needed those. You could have shown me, you know, you could have given me yeah. a sign. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so are you a spiritual guy? Like, I, 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 personally, I'm not, but a lot of people that I respect, like, I'm a huge Tim Tebow fan. Everyone that knows me knows that. Um, I know he's a very spiritual person, too. So I was wondering if, if you were, if that helped you get through some of these obstacles. You say you look for signs. I'm a believer in signs, too, but I don't really, from a religious standpoint, I don't know what the hell I believe sometimes, but <laughs> I just wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, you know, I've I've uh, I've I've been all over the world. I've studied Buddhism. I've studied Hinduism. I've 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 studied um, you know the, even the ancient Mayan cultures. So I, I was born and raised a Christian. So my my parents uh, took me to um, uh, a Methodist church, Presbyterian Methodist church. So I do believe, but I also believe what works for you works for you, and it's it's not my place to to push my beliefs on you and that's you know without getting too philosophical i think that's one of the one of the downfalls of our entire world and our mostly our, our country is that we lack respect you know if i say hey merry christmas and that offends one person out of 99 the 90, 99 have to change like who cares about that right, one exactly, person yeah. you know show some respect to the other people so if if you're Jewish, hey, happy Hanukkah. If you're a Christian, hey, Merry Christmas. I don't care what you believe, just yeah. be happy and doing what you're doing. And like if someone said that to you, like why would you get upset about it, you know? Like if uh, if someone who is Jewish said, you know, happy Hanukkah to someone who celebrates Christmas, it's like yeah, who cares? Exactly. Like in the big scheme of life, like I think you know the world's going to keep spinning, so. Yeah. 
No, I'm I'm actually waiting for uh, for somebody to go on a hunger strike because they're they think they're well. I'm waiting for somebody to say that another group was offended by something and that person go on a hunger strike and then somebody be offended because that person's on a hunger strike because there are hungry people in Africa. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that I'm, I would not be surprised if that happened. <laughs> so, all right. So when did you start competing in Ironman? Obviously, you're a phenomenal athlete. So. Did, was this during the climbs? Was it after the climbing? Were you like, all right, I already climbed the seven summits of the world, so I guess I'll figure out something else that's pretty hard to do. So, you know, I I had my eyes on it um, when I was, f- I was, I think it was when I was first diagnosed, um, and I was laying in the hospital bed, and I remember seeing the Hawaii Ironman on TV, and I told myself that if I if I got well and if I survived, I, my goal, one of my goals was to finish that race. And I got a media spot on there, so they, you know, did a whole backstory, and I was featured on it and, and everything else. So I just decided to pick up and do it. Um, they gave me a coach who helped out a lot. I did one sprint triathlon just for fun the summer before I even decided to do the Hawaii Ironman. And then to prove to them that I, I could finish it, I had to do the Vineman half Ironman, which is in California, which is beautiful. You know, you're biking through wine country and these rolling hills and this beautiful green lush valley and everything. Um, I finished that with a strain in my calf, so they knew I could finish the the full um, hundred and whatever crazy mile race it is. And I just wanted to finish it, you know, and I just kept pushing myself. And I think one of the one of the best things that I had going for me was my mental state. You know, the fact that I could be miserable for a long time. and Embracing the suck is what I call it. There you go. Yeah, and you, you just know it's going to suck. Yeah, you, you embrace it, and you just struggle through. And I'm sure, like, going through your, your cancer treatments, you kind of – that's where you built up that um, ability to embrace the suck, you know? Waking up yep. every morning where it's just, like, miserable, I'm sure. Not that I know, but I could just – from what you've said – that's definitely yeah, where that, I, where that come from, comes from. I think so, too. And, and I also think that I have a, um, a different threshold for pain, you know, and a, thre- and a different threshold for being miserable. I, I know what pain really feels like, and right. I know what being miserable really feels like, and I'm never going to go back to having ca- – hopefully, knock on wood, never get it again. Because I'll knock, too. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> When I when I knocked on I knocked on wood with Vanessa Cecchio too, and her dog was in the the room. So as soon as we knocked on the door, the dog thought that someone was at the front door, so it started barking all over the place. Yeah, I don't have a studio, so you know. All right, let's talk about. I, we kind of touched on this before about your Cancer Climber Association, and then also talk about your book and when you uh, decided to to write that. Well, the, the, the Cancer Climber Association, my brother and I founded back in, I believe, 2001. And our ultimate goal is to have a mobile camp for kids with cancer. Because uh, a lot of people can't, or a lot of kids can't leave the hospitals to get to the camps because they're compromised immune systems. So we want to bring the camp to the kids, which is going to be phenomenal. Um, in the meantime, I, like I said, I take a group up Kilimanjaro every year. And it's just a great trip. And one of the things that we've done in the past, and we're still doing now, and we're, if anybody's out there is, is interested, you know, please let me know. We give away a free trip to a cancer survivor every year. 
and they have to apply through um, cancerclimber.org or seanswarner.com or the easiest way is just to send an email to Killy, like Kilimanjaro, K-I-L-I, at cancerclimber.org. And we always take care of um, one survivor's wish to go to Africa every year. And it's great because when they were sick, you know, obviously they couldn't go to Africa, they couldn't climb Kilimanjaro, they couldn't do some, some things that they really wanted to. But now that they're a survivor, get out there and explore the world, you know? Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great opportunity. What, what have been some of the coolest experiences, you know, on these uh, climbs for Kilimanjaro um, that you've had? Like, do you have any stories that stick out? You know, last year, um, a guy named Pete, what's up, Pete? Um, <laughs> we, uh, he, he was a cancer survivor who went up last year. And when he got to the top, I have a video of him getting to the top, and he collapsed to his knees, uh, you know, his hands on his knees, and he started crying. And, and it, it's incredibly emotional because you put in so much effort, so much time, so much training. You're climbing throughout the entire night, and by the time you get to the top, you've been climbing through the night, and you're up for... God, you've been up for nine hours already, nine or probably ten or eleven hours, and it's it's eight in the morning, you know. Right. The sun's coming up, and it's it's just absolutely beautiful, and I still tear up when I get up there, and I've been up there a dozen times, and in in that same video, I have a guy who's who actually both of these guys are coming to visit Ben. He's coming in. He was actually, I believe, the the first um, uh, active duty Marine. To, to, set up, to get on top of Kilimanjaro, and he went up with us last year. And it's kind of funny because, you know, you, you picture a Marine being like one of these tough badasses who... who right, can do and they're used to embracing the suck. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And he gets up there, and he gets teary-eyed and emotional, but he doesn't get teary-eyed and emotional about making the, 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 the top and, and having these, um, these elated feelings. I have a video of him, and it's hysterical. Because he has no idea I'm filming, but he turns around, starts walking towards me, tearing up, and he, he, he this is what he says. He goes, it's such a long way down. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he starts tearing up because he's only halfway, and he starts crying. He's like, it's so far down. <laughs> oh, I'm sure all of his Marine friends are going to make fun of him for that one. Oh, I need a, yeah, I'm actually going to be giving a uh, presentation to him, I think, Later this summer, I should include that uh, to the mar- to a, a group of Marines. Yeah, that'd be hysterical. Yeah, you definitely should include that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, all right, so what's next for uh, for Sean Swarner? Well, next, I'm actually uh, like I said, uh, my first of seven eBooks is being um, it's it's going to be available. February 2nd, and earlier that day on February 2nd, I'm going to be ringing the New York Stock Exchange opening bell. Oh, wow, uh, really cool. Yeah, so if anybody loses money that day, it's not my fault. Um, and then the day after, I'm participating in the... Um, actually, Marmot, one of my sponsors, is the headline sponsor for the Empire State Building Stair Climb. Oh, okay, cool. So I'm running up 86 flights of stairs, I think. That sounds horrible. Yeah, it does. I'm going to definitely be embracing the suck there, and I'll be embracing my face on the ground when I get to the top. <laughs> yeah, well, legs will be burning. Do you get to take the elevator down, or you got to walk down? I hope I hope I can take the elevator down. <laughs> if no, like not, climbing it's, a mountain? It's, yeah, staying there for a couple of days. Somebody come get me. 
cool. What have, what are some of the coolest experiences you've had? I know you threw out the first pitch in a, a major league baseball game. What other kind of cool things have you been able to experience uh, based off of what your organization has done, what you've overcome? Um, because I've got some cool experiences from you know being hurt in football. So I'm you know there's nothing wrong with you know getting some some cool stuff out of a, a shitty situation. Yeah, for, no doubt, no doubt. Um, you know, I've I've been really fortunate with my speaking because it's, it's taken me all around the world. Um, man, I uh, I gave a talk, and whenever any like say a company flies me to London or Paris or you know Edinburgh in, in Scotland, it doesn't cost them any more to have me leave five, four or five days later. So on my dime, you know, I'll travel around and go see that. Um, one of the cool places was. Um, Loch Ness, you know, I, I was looking for Nessie. She she was elusive. I didn't see anything. That's cool. Um, I mean, that was pretty cool. Seeing the um, uh, the Eiffel Tower in Paris was beautiful. Uh, climbing in in Russia was interesting because I got spit on when I got into uh, Minyarna Valdi, which is just Russian for mineral water, uh, by some elderly elderly lady who still believed that the southern part of of Russia was the mother Russia. So she spit on me. She spit on the, the truck and said, you know, basically get the hell out of here. You don't belong here. What? Yeah. Um, I was in Jakarta when they had some bombings. So bombs. don't go there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I was in Jakarta when they had some bombings. I was in, uh, well, she's just recently. I was in Paris when all that stuff happened. I was in Brussels when all that stuff happened. Jeez, I went you're to- everywhere. I, I went to Colorado Springs when that happened, and when they had the shootings in L.A., I was there for that. I told my friends I'm not leaving the basement for the next year just to see what happens to the world. <laughs> yeah, world peace comes when Sean's in his basement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeez, I'm just going to go get lost in the mountains up in my backyard and never come home. <laughs> That's funny. Um, this is like a personal question for me. Um, how did you fine-tune your public speaking? I'm trying to get into like a similar, or a similar area, um, and I actually just signed up for uh, my local Toastmasters. I've done like public speaking classes in school and stuff like that, but I've really never gotten comfortable actually doing it. So I'm just curious like what kind of what your tips are and if you were nervous in the beginning too, if you're still nervous now. Um, Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I get nervous a lot. Um, but I also realized, and this might help too, is you know, you're up there telling a story. You're up there telling your personal struggles, um, your issues, and everything else. And people want to hear that because they can relate to it. And it's just a story. And if you mess up, no one's going to know about yourself anyhow. Exactly. Yeah. It's not like you're, um, yeah, it's not like a business but, presentation that you're like. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's not like a business presentation where you say, you know, X number of widgets equal Y number of gimbals and in and, and the Z, whatever, you know, and then wrong. it stands up. <laughs> yeah, you're wrong. But just getting comfortable with telling your story and knowing that people are actually there wanting to hear what you have to say, I think helps a lot. All right. Good way to calm the nerves. All right. Um, all right. Let's finish with. Your, your definition of perseverance. I don't do this with, with all my guests, but when I think that I'm going to get a really cool answer, I, <laughs> I throw it in there. God, perseverance. Um, I guess perseverance to me would mean it, it, a lot like courage, too, you know, continuing forward even though you're afraid. All right. Yeah, I like that. And, and pushing forward regardless of what other people think because you're doing the right thing. Right. And never giving up, essentially. Yeah, 
All right, cool. I mean, and that mentality obviously got you got you through, you know, your struggles and got you to climb the seven summits of the world and do your Ironmans and your your story is incredible and I really appreciate that you came on or took the time to to come on the show. No, I, I appreciate the the time that you took. You know, I know it's it's late where you are, but you know, I, th- I think something else that really helps is humor. And people who take life way too seriously just lighten up, man. Just just I'm relax with you. a little bit. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> when I, when I'm at work, I, I work at a hospital, and when I'm at work, I like I have all this like pent up energy inside me. Like I'm like I want to act like an idiot, but I can't. Like people are gonna think like, <laughs> but. As soon as I get outside the door and I sit in my car, I sometimes I just like scream. I'm like singing, <laughs> dancing, you know. I wish I could do that at work, but someday I'll, yeah, I'll be able to do just, that. Uh, yeah. Flip on um, what's that? Uh, I'm gonna live forever. Yeah. Just start dancing to that, or going in your uh, your underwear, socks, and a button-up shirt. Like uh, what was what was that movie? Um, I don't know. I'm not a movie guy. You, you uh, name movies, I'm I'm not gonna unless it's like uh, Billy Madison or. <laughs> no, everybody, everybody stupid knows, movies. Everybody knows this one. Um, Tom Hanks, not Tom Hanks. Um, <sighs> we're searching currently. Yeah, right. <laughs> Looking up right now. Um, Risky business. Risky I, business. I, I, I've heard of this. Yes. Yeah, I googled um, Tom Cruise sock movie. <laughs> it popped up his desk. <laughs> I'm sure you weren't the first person to to type that in either. <laughs> right. No, that was his his uh, dance scene. It's pretty funny. All right. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Sean. And this will post in a couple weeks. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much. Like I said, it's an honor. Appreciate it. Oh no, definitely the honor's mine. Mountain climbing is a perfect metaphor for this podcast and overcoming obstacles in general. New York Times bestselling author Andy Andrews once said, Everybody wants to reach the peak, but there's no growth on top of the mountain. It is in the valley that we slog through the lush grass and rich soil, learning and becoming what enables us to summit life's next peak. Getting injured or being thrown one of life's other curveballs is only a catalyst for future success even though it might not seem like that at the time. To learn more about Sean and his Cancer Climber organization, go to cancerclimber.org and seanswarner.com. To find the show notes for this episode, visit headsandtails.org backslash podcast backslash 20. Lastly, please go to iTunes leave us a five-star review so we can spread our message further and further every week. And remember to embrace the suck and get comfortable being uncomfortable. See you next week.